You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 57, uh, we already know, of course, that the angel Gabriel has prophesied uh, or promised uh, two major promises. The first promise, of course, is found in the early part of chapter 1 to Zechariah and by extension to his wife Elizabeth that they in their old age would give birth to a child and that they would name him John and that he would become the forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah, the forerunner for Jesus, the Messiah. The second promise from Gabriel was to a young woman named Mary, a godly young woman. She loved the Lord. She clearly loved God's word. And the promise to Gabe, from Gabriel to her is that she would give birth to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, God the Son, and that his birth would be a wonderfully miraculous pregnancy and birth, that the Spirit of God would overshadow her, that this pregnancy would not be a natural pregnancy uh, as every other pregnancy on earth, but that her pregnancy would come from God uh, himself and that she would carry within her womb uh, the Messiah, the child of God, the Son of God. And so now in verse 57, we fast forward to the time of first the birth of John and then three months later in chapter 2, the birth of Jesus. It says in verse 57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. I think it's important for us to pause for a moment and just to consider the wonder and the blessing that Elizabeth and Zechariah went through at the point of John's birth. Here she bears a son, her neighbors and relatives come together, they hear that the Lord has shown great mercy to her, and they rejoice with her. It says in Proverbs 13 verse 19 that a desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. And only God could really produce this kind of joy for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Years of longing, years of prayers, years of pain, years of difficulty, and probably years of giving up on the prayers that they'd prayed before the Lord. Probably their hope was at an all-time low that they would ever see the fulfillment of the things that they had so desperately desired in previous years. But I love that verse, Psalm 126, verse 5, those who sow in tear in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And really, that's what you have in Zechariah and Elizabeth, a, a married couple who righteously cried out to the Lord. They sowed in tears, but they reaped with shouts of joy. And so just a word concerning endurance. That's what uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth did. They endured. They held fast to their integrity. They remained steadfast. 
And the Lord wonderfully blessed their lives. And the, and the latter days of their lives, the, the end of their lives, were filled with so many of the blessings and the promises of God being fulfilled uh, in them. So just the joy of God coming upon them as they'd gone years without seeing a child being born, and just the blessing of God in, in, in hearing uh, the cry of these human hearts. Now on the eighth day, verse 59, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And so here, uh, there is a general fulfillment of, you know, the uh, Old Testament law uh, with them taking John on the eighth day and wanting to circumcise him. And there's a little bit of a debate that happens here because, well, the, you know, the family members wonder what his name will be. And Elizabeth says, well, it's John. You know, Elizabeth and Zechariah had gone back and forth and Zechariah had declared to her that the angel had declared that his name would be John. And so Elizabeth follows right along with that plan. But everybody's confused. So they go to Zechariah and he writes it down. His name is John. And immediately, verse 64, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And so at the moment that Zechariah wrote down that his name would be John on that tablet, immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. You know, I think an interesting study is to look at the words of Zechariah, the mouth of Zechariah. You know, his first recorded words really are words of unbelief. You know, how will this be? My, I'm an old man. My wife is an old woman. How will this be? And then his mouth is then silenced. He's unable to speak. He has to communicate via other means. But eventually when he does speak, his words are uh, words of blessing of God here in verse 64. And then his, I mean, we just have a general statement that his mouth was open, his tongue loose, and he spoke blessing God here in verse 64. But in a couple of verses, we actually have the recorded words of Zechariah. And beyond just blessing God, they are also highly prophetic words. And so something had happened in the meantime, the, 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 the gap between the words of uh, unbelief and the words of blessing and the words of faith. God had ministered to Zechariah's heart. He'd, he'd come to believe the promise of God upon his life. Faith had begun to grow uh, within him. And here now as he speaks, he speaks the right words, the correct words. And, and notice that he blesses the Lord. He doesn't uh, doubt the Lord. He doesn't uh, rebuke the Lord for that uh, period of nine months of silence. No, he celebrates the Lord. He blesses the hand of God. And the hand of the Lord uh, was 
uh, with him. A description of John the Baptist. After he's born, the hand of the Lord was upon him. Verse 66. And his father, verse 67, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. You know, there was a little bit of a question there. Uh, all the way from the time of the Babylonian captivity, uh, they had, you know, been taken captive into Babylon. And even though there were various kings who had allowed them to return to the promised land for the sake of rebuilding the city or rebuilding uh, the temple, the reality is that they were still, in one sense, an enslaved people. Uh, and, you know, the Romans were in authority and in power and in control. And so even though it had been over 400 years now that some of them at least had been back in the promised land, they knew that they were under occupation. And so for Zechariah, he has this promise that when his son is born, he will be the forerunner of the Messiah, the deliverer, the redeemer. And he is celebrating that. As a priest, he is celebrating that God has not forgotten his promises. And so he says, the Lord, the God of Israel, he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up, verse 69, a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And of course, as a prophet, uh, or excuse me, as a priest, uh, understanding the Old Testament, he would know that God had promised that in the line of David, uh, there would be a servant who would be the king, who would rule forever and sit on the throne eternally and establish the perpetual, never-ending uh, kingdom of Israel. And of course, John was not a fulfillment of that prophecy. Zechariah and Elizabeth, and by extension, their son John, they were from a different family. They weren't related to David. But the birth of John indicated to Zechariah that, the, that Jesus was going to be born and that the Messiah was now here. And, and he says, so verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so again, notice there, uh, Zechariah rejoices that the descendant of David has come, but he also rejoices that God is fulfilling the promise that he made to their descendant, Abraham. And so he's just simply rejoicing that God is keeping his covenant with the nation of Israel. Then he turns his attention in verse 76 to his own son. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. That's how John would be seen uh, in, in, in general by us as we look back upon his ministry. He was the prophet of the Most High, but Jesus would see him as his forerunner, as his prophet, as the one preparing the way of the Lord. And so he says that you'll be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways 
to give knowledge, verse 77, of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so Zechariah here in declaring what his son would be says some rather beautiful things. Notice, first of all, that he, that he says that, that John is going to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, it's interesting when you study John's ministry, and we will, especially when we get to chapter 3 of Luke's gospel. But when you study John's ministry, it was primarily a ministry of the preaching of repentance. And so, obviously, one thing that you learn there is that the, a, a sense of guilt really is preparatory for Jesus. If you have no guilt, then you sense no need for the Lord. If there's no humility, if there's no poverty of spirit, if there's no understanding that you are spiritually bankrupt before God, then there is no reception of Christ in the first place. And in another sense, that's part of a continual reception of the ministry of Jesus every single day in our lives. To come before the Lord with a general poverty of spirit, to say, Lord, I have a great need. I need you. I need your change and your transformation and your grace and your mercy upon my life. And so John, in one sense, was set out to crush spiritual pride. But he also, according to Zechariah, would give knowledge of specific things. And we have these beautiful words. He says in verse 77, uh, the knowledge of salvation. Uh, verse 77, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 78, the tender mercy of our God. And so in one sense, John was coming to begin to deliver the news of these beautiful uh, New Testament realities that are found in Christ. Salvation, forgiveness, mercy, and so Zechariah here declares these beautiful things that, that we're going to be led into the way of peace, partly as John prepared the way of the Lord for the people of Israel. And the child grew, verse 80, and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance uh, to Israel. And so you have in verse 80, the uh, just condensed story of the childhood and the early adulthood of John the Baptist. He grew, became strong in spirit, and at some point went into the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now in chapter 2, we move into the birth of Christ. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so, uh, of course, very Luke in there, we have uh, a specific time marker. And uh, this historical event, Caesar Augustus uttered this decree that all the world should be registered. Now, this speaks very plainly of the absolute power that Caesar Augustus uh, wielded at that 
time. He had the ability to command the entire world to go to their hometowns in order to be uh, registered. And so uh, this decree is given and all, verse 3, went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And so uh, they had to all go to their uh, town of their city or, excuse me, their family record. And uh, there are actually extra biblical records of this kind of event taking place from time to time during Rome's reign. And so Joseph, because he's of the lineage of David, goes to the town of Bethlehem. And, you know, I've often wondered if Joseph, who by all indications was a poor man living there in Nazareth, I, I wonder from time to time whether he despised this heritage, being a part of the royal family of David, yet living in such a humble state. The Lord was going to bless his life and bless him with the opportunity of actually being involved in the raising of the Son of God. Now, in verse 5, it tells us that he traveled there to Bethlehem with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And of course, as I've indicated already, to be betrothed just simply means that they were uh, in the state prior to a full marriage. They'd yet to come together sexually, uh, but uh, there was a promise that had been made. So the wedding had not yet occurred, but in a technical sense, they were bound uh, together. And it would have even required a certificate of divorce to break that betrothal. And so, uh, although the wedding has yet to occur, and they're not really truly yet uh, husband and wife, uh, she is betrothed to him, which is very significant. Now, uh, there are those who think that, well, the reason Mary's there is because she had to be there. And, and you just think of the difficulty of that journey as a pregnant woman. But then, on the other hand, uh, there are those who believe that Perhaps as a betrothed woman, actually Mary did not need to go uh, with Joseph. And if that's the case, then we would ask the question, why did she go with Joseph? And, well, perhaps uh, it was simply the whispers uh, there in Nazareth, the, the rumor mill there in Nazareth, the embarrassment there in Nazareth. It was likely very difficult for pe people to believe that this pregnancy had not come from immorality, which, of course, in that culture especially, was very much looked down upon. And uh, so perhaps she went with Joseph just to avoid, in one sense, that public eye. And so they go there uh, to Bethlehem to be numbered. Now, this is just the human perspective of all of these things, but we do know from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, God says, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient 
days. And so the eternal nature of Jesus is alluded to there, that he comes forth from old, from ancient days. Uh, but the reality that, that the Messiah needed to come from Bethlehem. And so what you see here is that even though uh, little Caesar Augustus thinks that he's in such power and authority, truly and in reality, God behind the scenes is directing the course of the affairs of mankind. And while they were there, verse 6, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so Jesus is born basically in a barn. They lay him in a manger, which was, was, would basically be a stone feeding trough for animals. And they wrap him in these torn strips, these swaddling cloths. And there he is, you know, born in relative obscurity and in a completely uh, humble uh, place with a humble existence. And I think it's important for us to remember and to see this humble start for the Son of God, God the Son, born in this low condition, in this lowly state. Uh, no room for them, even in an inn, but living and born out there uh, in a barn and for his first evening of sleep, uh, you know, fixed up as much as she could, uh, but laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. And, you know, this is for us, we can sort of sentimentalize a lot of these different kinds of things and say things like, you know, is there room in your heart? There was no room in the inn. Is there room in your heart? And those are, of course, wonderful things for us to glean from a text like this. But the big thing that we're to see is that, the, that God the Son, the eternal God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And he didn't appear just as a full-grown man. No, he was born here as a baby. He, he was a baby and lived as a toddler and as a teenager. And as an adult, he had birthdays. He got haircuts and was hungry and sleepy. And he did all of this for us. I think sometimes we overlook and forget of the humanity of Christ. And here we're seeing it in his birth. Laid in a little bed by his mother. Uh, dependent upon her for nourishment and care and protection. What humility, what lowering of the self. And so there is Jesus, born not in a place of great esteem, but born in real obscurity and definite uh, humility uh, for us, but just the humanity of Jesus. Now at the same time, in that region, it says in verse 8, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And so here we have these angels appearing now to the shepherds uh, out in their fields and announcing to them, we'll see in a moment, the birth of Jesus. Now, again, uh, Sometimes we see these shepherds perhaps in our mind's eye and don't think much of it. But really in that culture, 
these shepherds would have been considered low and unclean in that society. And uh, they were the ones to receive this announcement. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, there were great men who previously had been shepherds. David, of course, comes to mind. The greatest king in Israel had been a shepherd as a younger man. Moses, during his years of preparation before uh, shepherding the people of Israel, shepherded the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. And so here we have a great announcement to these shepherds and an angel of the Lord appears to them uh, and the glory of the Lord shone, shone around them and they were fill, filled with great fear. Now, I probably should point out that if these shepherds were out in the field, uh, then it indicates uh, that they were likely not there. Uh, this was likely not something that happened in the winter months. Uh, they would from April to autumn be out in the field taking care of their uh, sheep, uh, but not during the winter months, likely far too cold for them to be out in the field at night, which of course, you know, helps us understand that our traditional date of December 25th for Jesus's birth is uh, more than likely uh, not the date that Jesus was born, but we don't know when he was born. So we might as well celebrate his birth on that date, but just something for us at least there to observe. And these angels here were filled with incredible fear. They're terrified at the sight of this angelic realm. And the angel, verse 10, said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Messiah has been born, the angel tells them. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, it wouldn't have been all that uncommon for a baby to be lying in swaddling cloths, but to be in a manger. That would be the real kicker, to be sleeping in a uh, feeding trough. But he says, I've got good news for you of great joy. And suddenly, verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so you have this really in one sense, we like to think of these uh, angels as singing these things. It says that they were praising God and saying, but you have this heavenly host there for just these few shepherds. And their announcement as they sing or declare is that there is now peace available with God, that there is peace possible between God and man. Now, this is beautiful because as we saw there in the first verse of this chapter, a Caesar Augustus had an enforced military peace that was so strong that he was able to require every person to be registered or numbered in their hometown. But far greater than that Roman version of peace, that Pax Romana, was the peace that Jesus would provide between God and man. You see, Jesus would be the one to satisfy the wrath of God on the cross of Christ and make a way for mankind to receive the righteousness of God so that he could be perfect and pure in the sight of a holy, perfect and pure God. And so Jesus here offering the peace 
of God. And when the angels, verse 15, went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it, verse 18, wondered at what the shepherds told them. And so there is this amazement uh, at this report from these shepherds. And so they found out that what the Lord had promised through the angels was true. And they glorified the Lord and, and wondered. And people wondered at what the shepherds had told them. These great messengers of the Lord. The angels didn't declare to the townspeople. The shepherds declared. I think indicative of our ministry here on earth today. The Lord doesn't use the angels to declare. He uses us to declare. But Mary, verse 19, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so Mary ponders these statements. She's putting it together, so to speak, ponders these things in her heart, and perhaps even told Luke about these events and said, you know, this was something that I just treasured within my heart. And Jesus, of course, was given the name Jesus in obedience to what the angel had spoken and promised to them before he was conceived in the womb. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.